Welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 127, Islamic History, the year 625, the Battle of Uhud, part 3. During an ancient battle, any commander's worst nightmare would be a sudden collapse. It could be due to panic or simply being outmatched, but the worst thing that could happen tactically to an ancient army is for them to suddenly break discipline, break ranks, and collapse and give the enemy a victory. And in the process, you might end up giving them your entire army. Now, usually, almost always, this is something that would happen because that side was losing. And the men panic, and they flee for their lives, and it just makes things even worse. But in the case of Uhud, and this is kind of unique among battles that I know of, it was actually victory that disintegrated the ranks and doomed the army. During the heart of the Battle of Uhud, the Muslims were reliant on a very specific formation that they had set up to offset their massive handicaps in this battle. And it was working. The Muslim fighters were pushing back the enemy fighters, causing great attrition to their numerical superiority, gaining the upper hand. And the Muslims eventually surrounded them enough that the remaining Meccans broke out and fled. It was their job to move, to fight and to crush the enemy. But remember those 50 archers? They were different. They weren't supposed to move and to fight and crush the enemy. Those 50 archers on that critical hill, the ones who had managed thus far to neutralize the enemy cavalry and make all of this possible, they were supposed to stay put. And they were specifically told, do not move no matter what. You remember these words? That according to Muslim histories came directly from Muhammad himself. It couldn't have been more clear. Muhammad said, whether we are winning or losing, you stay where you are. If you see us plundering a defeated army and wish to have a share of it, stay where you are. If you see us dying and you want to help us, stay where you are. The orders were very clear. I mean, I can't even think of clear orders to possibly give to someone. So, what did they do? As soon as they thought the battle was won and saw the opposing army going for the camp and looting it, what did they do? They ran off the hill. Unbelievable. Now, to be fair to these archers, I am a tad skeptical that Muhammad actually said the words given in the histories at least the exact words, because it's just way too convenient. It's just a little too on the nose. It just kind of gives up a, a skeptical radar <laughs> if you read enough history. 
because there's a usefulness to this if it is a lie that Muhammad said exactly that, because there is a way now to lay the blame for what happened on a small group of people and to tell a moral tale at the same time. And it's entirely possible this was something that was made up after Muhammad was dead, again, to teach a lesson. Now, I don't base that on anything other than simple instinct, but it's just a little hard to believe that Muhammad, a person they believe is a prophet, would give such explicit orders, and then they would deliberately disobey those orders out of sheer greed. Now, is it possible? Yes. I mean, we're talking about people. We're talking about the heat of battle. It's entirely possible. Especially because Muhammad, if you want to be really cynical about it, he was in a position on the battlefield where he probably was not going to see them doing this. But again, probable? Eh, not really. You can be the judge. I mean, really, I could see either argument on that side. I just think it's slightly more likely that Muhammad didn't say at least those exact words. But again, if he did, and they did what they did, yeah, that's astounding. And to be clear, I'm only debating those alleged words of Muhammad, not the fact that they actually left the hill. Oh, they definitely left the hill. And it was definitely a stupid thing to do. They were soldiers, not commanders. And you have orders for a reason. No one relieved them, but they left anyway. And I should also note that maybe about 10 of them stayed, including their commanders. But 40 others basically said, hey, Muhammad doesn't want us to stay here forever. I mean, right? Isn't it time to join in the victory party? And if you're of the opinion that these men actually had explicit orders to stay there, but didn't, uh, and Muhammad really did make their orders that clear, this would be your strongest evidence, because the commander stayed. It was the rabble that abandoned him. So you had these undisciplined archers running off this key hill. For whatever reason that happened, it happened. And unfortunately for them, they were very premature. They should have listened to their commander, who probably understood that an enemy is not defeated until he considers himself to be defeated. The Meccans didn't think it was over, not at this point, and they had some competent generalship. Now remember, the two main generals in this battle would eventually go on to lead Muslim victories under the later caliphates. But for now, they were fighting against the Muslims. So these were competent generals. They had competent leadership, and they would seize the opportunity. Now, I should note, these two were Khalid ibn al-Walid and Ikrimah ibn Abu Jahl. And yes, that is the same name as the infamous Abu Jal. This was his son. Now, a nicer name for him is Ikrimah ibn Amr. 
that Amr was his father's name after all. No one names their kid Abu Jal. It means father of ignorance. That was an epithet that that came later. Well, actually, probably existed at the time. Uh, that's just how he would be known. And for these two guys, this horrific mistake by a few dozen Muslims would lead to one of their finer moments. Now, I want to focus not on Abu Jal's son, uh, but on Khalid, who was the other guy. He was the general in charge of the cavalry. Now, Khalid probably could not believe his luck when he saw those 50 men leaving their post. And, as a good general, he immediately moved to exploit the situation to his advantage. Now, Khalid, who to his credit did not give up on the battle immediately when the infantry looked like it was being routed, he hooked around the Muslim army with his cavalry, going through the gap the archers were supposed to be protecting, and then hitting the Muslims in the back. Now, him and his cavalry could just loop around and around, smashing the Muslims from the rear in any direction they chose. Remember, the Muslims had no counter to this. They had no cavalry or anything that would deflect cavalry, like long pikemen or something like that. I'm not even sure such a concept actually existed in Arabia at the time. That'd be an interesting thing to dig into. I mean, I'm sure the, the Greeks had it. This was something well-known at the time in the ancient world, how to uh, deflect cavalry. But you don't see that in this. And what a difference 200 horses makes, particularly when against zero horses. Now, the Muslims, who were busy looting the Meccan camp, they saw that the battle wasn't over. And so they tried to reform ranks in their old position or as close to it as they could get. You know, and they wanted to get into some kind of coherent formation, if possible. Now, this helped, but 200 horses is a massive, massive force against what was, by that point, I don't know, maybe 500 men. They might have had a chance to defeat the cavalry, but... There was an even bigger problem forming now. The Meccan infantry, seeing what was happening, fled back to the battlefield. So remember, they were being routed. Now they're coming back. And at this point, the Muslim army really had no chance because cavalry plus infantry beats infantry almost every time. And they were surrounded. They had infantry in front of them and cavalry to the back and in every direction, really. This was a complete breakdown. Now it was the Muslims who were being routed and they began to flee. And as they did, the Meccans started to move in on Muhammad himself. You might remember that earlier on I described Medina as a horseshoe with an opening facing north. Well, in this case, I want you to think about this particular terrain where Muhammad and his personal guard were, almost like a horseshoe, but with an opening to the, the south or the east. As his troops fled and the Meccans advanced, 
and with such suddenness, it probably took Muhammad completely by surprise. Muhammad was trapped. Mountains to three sides and enemy troops to the other. Theoretically, he could have tried to flee to the mountains. That's an obvious play, but the Meccans surrounded him and his people so quickly that even that wasn't an option. Now, this was the most danger that Muhammad had been in since he snuck out of Mecca three years prior. As the enemy was closing in, Muhammad rallied his troops and consoled those who were wounded. At one point, he said to them, Know that paradise is beneath the shallow sh- shadow. Paradise is beneath the shadow of the swords. And if he actually said that, wow, that's a great line. <laughs> I really shouldn't have flubbed that. He said, Paradise is beneath the shadow of the swords. Just think about that for a minute. So Muhammad delivers this spectacular line, but very soon he had taken at least one rock to the face, if not more. And an enemy cavalryman singled him out and was able to deal him a blow directly on the helmet, probably a big sword hit right on the helmet. Now the helmet did its job, but the force of the blow knocked Muhammad to the ground. As this happened, Muhammad's guards continued to shield him. When one was cut down, another took his place. This is just the most desperate struggle you'll ever see. And one of the last guards to step up was called Nuseba, one of the two women in Muhammad's personal guard. And we shouldn't just gloss over that. (laughs) This is amazing. That's no small thing. We're not talking about a female minister or advisor. We're talking an old school soldier, as physical a job as anyone can hold. And in the elite guard, this is like an NFL team having a woman at middle linebacker. It's really, really wild. This woman tends to merit a a sentence or two in the histories, but Just think about how astounding this is. How is this not a Hollywood movie? Just think about how extraordinary it is to have a soldier like that. Yes, we have female soldiers today, but you don't really need much upper body strength to point a gun and shoot it. We're talking about an ancient battle with melee weapons. And she lived. This was Nuseba bint Kab. You actually have to try to find that name sometimes. The name itself is not in many narratives. It's just like a woman or something like that. She was also one of the two women to swear allegiance at Al-Aqaba. That was many episodes ago. And unsurprisingly, this woman was not from Mecca. She was a more fierce stock of the original Medinans from the Khazraj tribe. So she's with Muhammad. When, gradually, word begins to spread that Muhammad is dead. And why were people starting to believe that Muhammad was dead? 
well, there were two reasons for this. The first was the cavalrymen who had almost knocked Muhammad unconscious. Well, this guy thought he had actually killed him, and he said so. And then there's the second reason. When the Meccans were closing in on Muhammad, Muhammad's standard bearer managed to distract the Meccans using the Prophet's standard. And he goes off <laughs> at a distance and he goes, Allahu Akbar. And this drew some attention. And some soldiers killed him, of course. And at that fateful point, this was when the fog of war handed the Muslims a spectacular gift in the confusion. So word spread that Muhammad was dead. It spread all throughout the battlefield. When in reality, this person everybody had seen dying, it was actually his standard bearer, Musab ibn Umair. It was his standard bearer who was dead. And it was Muhammad's helmet, not Muhammad, that was dealt a fatal blow. Muhammad was safe. He was on the ground surrounded by a pile of bodies. And for the moment, to everyone who was there, it appeared that the Meccans had achieved their ultimate objective of killing Muhammad. And then, at this point, they made the same mistake that the Muslims made earlier. They let up. I mean, in this case, they didn't want to risk their lives any further for an objective that it seemed had been achieved. This is unbelievable really, by modern standards and by, say, Roman standards. The, the lack of discipline in both these armies is absolutely appalling. If either side throughout the battle had listened to their command and continued to fight until they were told otherwise, that side would have won a total victory. It's actually something you would expect to see in an army with low morale. But neither side had low morale. They certainly found their bearings later, but the Battle of Uhud, it doesn't really preview a people who will one day conquer an empire to rival Alexander, at least militarily speaking. So the Meccans had led up, and a newly conscious Muhammad was not about to wait for them to rediscover their fighting spirit. So he led his remaining people to a glen that went up Mount Uhud, getting them into a strong defensive position on the mountain. And having a moment to stay, take stock, Muhammad tried to dislodge a couple of chainmail rings that had been forced into his mouth. He was alive, not unscathed. Now his companions were working to get it out, also using their own mouths to suck the blood out of Muhammad's mouth while they were trying to free the rings from his gums. Why did they feel the need to suck out the blood? That little bit is a bit mysterious, but as we've gone over a few times, they couldn't have known just how unhygienic this is. They were trying to help, <laughs> even if it probably wasn't, especially in a battlefield setting with open wounds. But Muhammad appreciated the gesture, nonetheless, and I suppose it's the thought that counts. And eventually, once it was too late, 
the Meccans learned that Muhammad was not dead. However, they didn't regather their forces and chase him up the mountain. It's possible that one guy on a horse may have done that, but if he did, that guy was killed real quick. But really, once the Muslims started going up the mountain, the battle was over. And basically, both sides decided to call it a day. First at the lower levels, judging by the actions of the troops, and then later by the ultimate leaders of each side, those two leaders being Muhammad and Abu Sufyan. But Abu Sufyan, before they left, he decided to confront Muhammad. Well, in a way, he rode his horse to the mountain and shouted up to Muhammad. Is that a confrontation? I don't know. Basically, Abu Sufyan was making sure that Muhammad knew that they were now even. A day for a day, he said, meaning that Muhammad wasn't better than him, and that Hubal, his particular god, Abu Sufyan's god, this guy who, this guy, this god, Hubal, he was saying, is just as good as Muhammad's Allah. So Abu Sufyan is shouting up and saying, my God is just as good as your God. And the Muslims would reply to this. And the reply to this would be famous. And in my opinion, this is actually the best line in the movie, The Message. Now in the movie, this line is delivered by Zayd, Muhammad's adopted son. He was just low enough on the Muslim totem pole that the Muslims could show his face and use his voice. But in reality, the line was actually delivered by Umar. He was too important a figure to be actually represented on film, given Muslim sensibilities. But again, I understand why the, the filmmakers did this. You don't want to leave this line out. It's too good. Because hearing the taunt, Muhammad told Umar to go answer Abu Sufyan. And then Umar said this. We are not equal. Our dead are in paradise. Your dead are in hellfire. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.